Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. I am regularly surprised by how short each of our memories really are. And when I say our memories, I'm not talking about the memory that we use when we jog back the times when we were kids, with family or with friends. I'm talking about our memory of situations and life, and in particular, the memories we have when we make promises. I'm always astounded by people who I see sit in shul on the high holidays, davening fervently, tears in their eyes. You can tell that they're feeling the passion of the prayer in the moment. And just a few steps outside of the shul, they're already engaged in some of the things that we vowed we wouldn't participate in for the year. Whether it's Lashon Hara, evil talk about others, whether it's yelling with another person over a parking spot or how they're driving, somehow or another, those issues seem to come back at us. And we have short memories for how it is that we promise ourselves we're supposed to behave. I'm reminded of this because of a conversation I had this week with the office of Dalia Rabin. Dalia Rabin is the daughter of the Prime Minister of Israel who died, was assassinated, Alava Shalom, Yitzhak Rabin. And over the past year, I've been blessed to have a friendship with her. And I had a visit with her when I was last in Israel, and she personally took us around to her museum that she has dedicated in memory of her father in Tel Aviv. And I will tell you, as a person who goes to almost every museum in Jerusalem, and not with any bias, it's one of the most impressive and most compelling museums telling the story of Israel I've ever witnessed. The part that bothered me so much about that museum was a real testimony at the end, shortly before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, that showed demonstrations from those who were opposed to his political views, where they had dressed up Rabin in character and figure wearing SS clothing. He was dressed to look like a Nazi because there were those who were opposed to his political views and they were likening him to those who had set out with the murder and extinction of the Jewish people. It happened throughout Israel. As there were protests on the right, there were protests on the left. And it wasn't until that terrible day in November, that Saturday night, when we heard the reverberations around the world of those gunshots by Yigal Amir, that we realized fully how painful, how hurtful, how much damage our language, our rhetoric, and our actions can cause. It was the very next morning on Sunday when Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of the opposition, said, we will make a coalition government now. It was the very next Sunday when all of the people in Israel, whether on the right or the left, hid their face in shame and embarrassment for allowing in some way or another that behavior to have happened and for not using enough voice to quash it, to silence it, to say that's against the rules and that's unacceptable. For those who remember those times, 
1995, right before the assassination of Rabin, the state of Israel was on the cusp of what felt like a civil war. I bring all of this up from 15 years ago because if you're following the newspapers, you're following the conversations, you're following articles, whether from Facebook, Twitter, Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, the New York Times, the Washington Journal, the Wall Street Journal, and you see the conversations back and forth, it seems that we have again lost our memory and lost our promise that we had in the wake of the assassination of Rabin and how it was that we're going to speak to one another and accept one another and tolerate one another. Allow me to give you three quick examples. In the past few months, there has been a simmering debate between leaders in our communities. The first one that comes to mind was that of Jeff Wiesenfeld, who is a board member of CUNY, City University of New York, and the award-winning playwright Tony Kushner. CUNY, CUNY was about to give Kushner an honorary degree during its commencement exercises this year, and Wiesenfeld, one of the board members, protested the idea of Kushner receiving this award. He protested it because Kushner was very vocal and opposed to the way that he believed Palestinians were being treated by Israelis, and he called their actions a blood libel. It was Wiesenfeld who was so upset by these views and who called and requested and demanded that the leadership revoke the award to Kushner, which they did. And then after much pressure and appreciating free press and a multiplicity of views, Kushner was then granted the award and received that award honoris causa at the City University of New York graduation ceremonies. Now, obviously, Kushner and Wiesenfeld are on two totally different sides of the spectrum. But the rhetoric that existed between the two of them over this debate has been heated, ugly, and nasty, to say the very least. The second example I share with you has to do with an opinion piece that was written about two and a half months ago by Rabbi Danny Gordis, a friend and colleague of mine, someone who's graced this bima as our scholar in residence. He wrote a very passionate, heated, and targeted letter directing his frustration and anger against young rabbinical students who are choosing to study in Israel. What he found was a growing number of rabbinical students who were finding incredible amounts of empathy, compassion, understanding for the plight of the Palestinians, but were lacking in empathy, compassion, and understanding for those Israelis who were suffering through the challenges of this ongoing war between the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Israelis and the neighbors in the region. It was Gordas, and I'm paraphrasing his words now, that demanded that rabbinical students of any denomination, reform, conservative, orthodox, unaffiliated, have a moral responsibility to have unconditional love for the state of Israel. As with anything, we can question it, we can critique it, we can ask for it to be better, but if we don't have unconditional love for the state of Israel, and we can't show support on its independence day, and compassion on its day for the fallen soldiers, then these young men and women have no right studying to become rabbis in the first place. That powerful and targeted letter was responded to beautifully and pointedly by the dean of the Jewish Theological Seminary's rabbinical school, Rabbi Danny Nevins, someone who has also graced this bima and been our scholar on multiple times. Rabbi Nevins said 
that he takes great pride and appreciation and beauty and the multiplicity and in the plethora of voices that exist in his rabbinical school. And it's there in the rabbinical school where he teaches his students to be critical and to hear all the voices that exist in the Talmud and all the voices that exist in the Mishnah and all the voices of the comparing and contrasting views that also get heated and angry between the rabbis of old. And it's there that they appreciate those voices and what they have to bring. And that students who struggle with that challenge should be celebrated, not scorned. The last example I bring to you comes again from Rabbi Danny Gordis, and this time in his debate that he had with leaders of J Street. J Street is a PAC that exists in Washington that believes in particular political views and how they should be accepted and embraced by the American government within the state of Israel. Rabbi Gordis was invited to speak to J Street leaders on a visit to Israel. And there, Gordis called the leaders of J Street immoral, direct quote, immoral, for saying to them that those who were opposed to their methods of peace wanted peace any less than those who were part of J Street. And how dare they be the ones to say that those on the right or those who are questioning the legitimacy of their partners for peace are not interested in peace or don't care about the future of the state of Israel. The leader of J Street, Jeremy Ben-Ami, responded to Gordas in a very pointed and direct way. While appreciating his opinion, he disagreed with almost all of it. And he said to him, Rabbi Gordas, we want a Palestinian state that lives side by side with an Israeli state. We want sovereignty and we want peace. We want a homeland for the Jewish people. And we want that homeland to be Jewish and democratic. So there you have it. Three examples. Wiesfeld, Kushner, Gordis, Nevins, the right wing versus J Street. Three polarities and their views for Israel. And the problem today is not that we have these differing views because they're no different than they were 15 years ago before the assassination of Rabin and no different than they were 40 years ago and 50 years ago and 60 years ago. But I contend today that if I were deputized with the role of refereeing these factions that are disputing amongst themselves, I would bring them all to the center of the ring and I would say, you are breaking every rule. No one has a problem with your dissenting views one against the other. But the problem exists in the way that we express it. And let me tell you, that matters. It matters a lot. I'm reminded of a teaching by my friend and mentor, Rabbi David Wolpe, who watched an episodes of The Simpsons. Hello. He was watching an episode of The Simpsons, and it was Thanksgiving. And Marge's family came to celebrate Thanksgiving with Marge and Homer. And she knocks on the door, and Marge is busy making pies and turkeys and all these things. And as she opens the door to greet her mother, a cigarette is dangling from her lips. She has this raspy voice, and she says, I want you to know before I come in, you've done absolutely nothing right today. 
What Wolpe pointed out from that is that that's acceptable. It's acceptable not because we're allowed to beat up on our family, but there's a difference when family criticizes us versus the average Joe on the street. That we know when Marge's mother walks in that room and when any of our mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, family members give us critique, that we know there's a layer of unconditional love that exists in those critiques. We know that there's a layer of understanding, appreciation, and genuine care even when we disagree. And when I have disputes and arguments with my wife and even with my children, they know, no matter what, that I love them and I know that they love me, even when our tempers and our volumes escalate. That's the difference between an average Joe and a Dutch uncle. A Dutch uncle is the person who tells you things that you don't want to hear and sometimes they tell you in a way you don't want to hear it. They give you that cold water in the face and sometimes it's refreshing and sometimes it wakes us up and sometimes it scares us. But a Dutch uncle is above all an uncle, which is family. And what's happening now between these conversations with Wiesenfeld and Kushner, with Gordis and with Nevins, with J Street and others on the other side, is that we're losing the fact that we have in the common denominator between us. And we're losing that fact because of the way in which we're speaking one to the other. And it's a problem. And if you ever wanted a proof text of it, you just have to look at the Bible. And you have to look at what we read today in Parshat Korach. It was Parshat Korach where we learn about a guy who comes up to Moses and Aaron and says, You suck! You stink! You're the worst! This isn't working! Get out of here! And what happens? The land opens up and swallows Korah. Not because his critique wasn't welcome, but it's the way in which he offered his critique. Korah was Moses' cousin, but you didn't feel any of the unconditional love that a cousin should have for another flesh and blood. Had Korah come to Moses and said, you are my cousin, you are my relative, you are my flesh and blood, and no matter what, I love you. But I have to let you know what's happening isn't working for me and a lot of people. And we've got to make it better. I doubt the world would have been swallowed up. And I bet you that if Kushner and Wiesenfeld ever sat at a table together and one said to the other, I'm a proud Jew, I love being Jewish, and I want the state of Israel to exist in security, that they'd have a much easier time massaging through their kinks than they would in this war of words that is simmering into a civil war between them. I'm not so naive to suggest that just because they offer those three or four sentences of niceness, of kindness, of how to appreciate one to the other and how to talk one to the other, it's going to be the recipe to have harmony amongst the Jewish people that hasn't existed since our inception and this isn't the recipe or a quick fix. But how we speak makes a difference. If I turn to a congregant and I say, you're doing the wrong thing. I don't like the way in which you're doing this. It's hurting us in our shul. That will disenfranchise him or her. It will distance them. Whereas if I turn to them and I say, I love you. And I love your passion for our congregation. And I love that you're committed to making a difference. But I think the difference you're trying to make isn't going to benefit us, at least through my lenses and allow me to share it with you. The distinction is obvious. The way that we talk to each other matters. 
it matters. Because when we fight in the way that we're fighting and we have discord with the manner of language that we're having today that exists in all of these articles we've been watching in the papers, and I promise you, as the election gets closer, it's going to get more heated here in America. It's divisive, not inclusive. And we will yield nothing, nothing from that result. The lesson of Karach is a message to all of us. Whether it's Wiesenfeld or Kushner, Gordis or Nevins, J Street or the right, it doesn't matter. The lesson for us is to remember how we speak to another. Remember that family is family and a Dutch uncle is an uncle. And a Dutch uncle matters more than the average Joe. And even though it might sting and hurt when Marge's mother walks in the room and says you've done nothing right, she shouldn't have to put her head on the pillow and question her love that her mother has for her. And Israel should never have to question the diaspora's love for her. We need to make it a point to be unconditional in our love, respect, appreciation for the homeland that we've had for 63 years. For if we don't, God knows what the results could be. We learned it 15 years ago in the assassination of Rabin. We've learned it from the time of the Torah with Korach. And God forbid we could learn it again. Let this be our wake-up call. Let this be our reminder of our responsibility and the language that we should use and the tone that we should take when engaging in a debate that matters to us. May we all be Dutch uncles, uncles that share the truth in a way that might hurt or sting, but the level of love and unconditionality is always known and felt now and always. Amen. We continue page 100.